Good morning, mimetic meat puppets. Welcome to Destroy All Clickbait, the show where we poke around the internet and uh, take a look at what snarls back at us. I'm Adam. With me, as always, are Ing and Abby. Hello. Hello. Hi. Yes, and we've had a uh, an interesting couple of uh, entries suggested this week, which I uh, I liked. Yes. And we've had a uh, uh, interesting uh, this week. You had a couple. So I thought uh, we'd look at those specifically. I I know we've we've we seem to be developing a fan base. <laughs> Which are we now? Look, yes. I mean I know we have to promote the stuff, but I will not allow you to turn this podcast into a house of lies. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if we have like two people listening, it is technically a fan base, so we are not lying. Okay, there's literally yes. twos heard... of people. <laughs> Twos of people, yes. Veritable couples, yes. Hold on, I a need to contact like. the advertising agents. You want to book us? We reach literally tens of people. <laughs> <laughs> All we need is those sweet, sweet sponsorships now, right? Yeah, well, soon we'll get there. We'll have, we'll have viewership numbers that we can point to. Alrighty, so which one should we start with first? Well, let's look at the Sparta one, which I okay. enjoyed. Ing, what, what do you want to tell us about this? Uh, all right, this is from Fact in Eight. Fact in Eight. Fa- fact in Eight. Fact in Eight. Fact in Eight. Um, which is 48 Ruthless Facts About Spartans. <laughs> 48 Ruthlessly uh, Stretched Out facts about Spartans, yes. One, I'm amazed they didn't stretch it out to actually reach 300. <laughs> oh, God, well, of yes. course not. Because that would actually be funny. <laughs> well, yes, but come on. You would have, we all would have given up around uh, 129, I think, in that Here, case. Okay, so um, here's the thing with background on why this one is taken. I actually kind of... <sighs> As a historical interest, Sparta is interesting, mm-hmm. but it's but Sparta was an absolute trash fire of a civilization. Oh yes, that's a, what it seems like, and cult, I don't even know that much about Sparta. A cultural well, come a, and learn with us. Abby. A cultural <laughs> and evolutionary cul-de-sac, if you were, and mm-hmm. they were just both pretty. In the long term, of course, not successful and fairly detestable. So I really do have a personal hate for, like, the uh, fanboyism of how much uh, Spartans are associated with the pinnacle of military manliness. Might that be because they made a popular blockbuster movie about uh, the Spartans? I mean... And uh, that one that was uh, extremely historically accurate? Yeah. <laughs> Possibly. I that might have, have something to do with it. And this list also gets on my tits with the very first one that for some reason lists number 48, which is just a factoid about the concept of a phalanx, which they yeah. managed to fucking talk about without actually using the term phalanx. So we're off to a fucking good start. But instead of titling it The Phalanx Formation, it's titled Birth of a Nation. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, like this person very clearly thought they were they were being clever, and it's like, no, you're not. That's not clever at all. It's it's actually quite stupid. <laughs> uh, one, it, uh, the next one, it lists the early enrollment about how children were taken from their families to begin training at an early age. It, however, does not give the actual proper analysis that this was one of the reasons why the Spartan society absolutely failed, because it turns out that if you kill uh, about, like, er, four out of every ten children for imperfections... Oh my god. Your, popula- your population and the such might have trouble growing or remaining standard. Yeah. Especially when you set up everyone to be soldiers and don't give uh, them a lifespan expectancy to reach past 30. That that is the retirement goal. And that they're not even allowed to settle down and reproduce their own new Spartalings until that age. (laughs) Yes. But it's so okay it's because they forced the women no, this to have was a gr- Ah, this was a great success of the Spartan thing. It was an absolutely horrible and needlessly cruel idea. Uh-huh. It was a dumpster fire. Yes. Essentially. Next two were just Yeah. Well, they 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 trick First of all, this this site tricks you into thinking uh it's actually going to be reasonable by putting three facts on the first page. But and then... as as you continue <laughs> It it ends up being a sentence per page as it goes on. But, uh, yeah. Oh, I love it. Uh, in anyway. 44, we have that being a little chubby was not an option in Spartan, and it has some good old fat shaming with a picture of a rotund man attempting to do a sit-up. Yeah. And mind you, they double it again with 43 with more fat shaming. Might I also point out... Well, it's a out... good thing we're not like that society where... Might I also point out that for the whole thing of that with the physical standards, Sparta as a civilization was basically given its final death kneel by the fucking Romans steamrolling through in their conquest of the Hellenistic territories and all, upon which they were (laughs) little more than a fucking footnote, and the Roman centurions and legionnaires were said to carry their rations around their waist. Huh. Yeah, so suck it, fanboys. The empire that lasted a far longer than Sparta and conquered Europe was made up of the chubby Italians. Of course. So you're saying the Roman soldiers were more uh, obese, basically. They were more bulked up around the way. Oh, okay. Well, a lot of what people don't, don't necessarily realize that when you... That when you look like a Greek statue, that doesn't necessarily mean you're actually more powerful oh, sure. or stronger. It just means that you've you've sculpted your muscles to look a particular way. Oh, yeah. absolutely! I I totally get that. I just I didn't know that that about the Romans. No, actually, uh, well, think about Italian food. It's mostly carbs. Well, that... <laughs> yeah, but they didn't have pasta that way. No. But, <laughs> I know. but as a point of fact. Uh uh, gladiatorial coliseum doctors and this eventually made its way down into the and to like the military idea the gladiatorial doctors would recommend to their patients to gain a sufficient layer of uh Mm. torso adipose for their job 
specifically because such adipose is not heavily vasculated. Mm. Which In other means words, you don't bleed as much and you've when, got a layer of fat. When it's cut, which means if you remain physically fit and maintain that build, you get to you can take being cut a lot better and remember that right. the gladiatorial was not just winning, but putting on a show. Right. Somebody who could actually take a good, gruesome-looking blow and get back <laughs> up again and fight again in another month or so would have a good huh. career. Right. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, that is actually quite interesting. Yeah. That, so, that having deposits of fat is better than having very uh, low body fat. <laughs> well, but, but the soldiers had armor, right? I'm not, oh, yeah. I'm not no. imagining that, right? No, Mostly. yeah, they did. Yeah. Right. But it's also, for the Roman thing specifically, uh, legionnaires and legionnaires were in Rome, part of the policy that was before a march and basically being dispatched or mobilized, there would be effectively carb loading. Because... Interesting. Because it's difficult to carry rations with a supply line so the idea is is that you want to basically maintain mm. a in the form of blubber a famine buffer in case there do it does have to be lean times while fighting up say in the britons or in huh. the german lands right huh okay yeah and that all makes sense uh now it, the incidents of the battle of thermopylia which 300s mm -hmm. is about, annoys me also, because it's like, ah, 300 Spartans stood up against the entire Persian Empire. Yeah, 300 per Spartans and a dwarf that were dwarfed by the contribution of the other Hellenistic states that actually right. sent their goddamn fucking armies. So no, it's not right. so much 300 yeah. Spartans and some Athenians, it's some um, Athenian and Thebians and 300 Spartan fucks were there for some reason. <coughs> right. Because the Spartans just happened to show up. No, well, because Sparta should have been able to yeah, mobilize their military, but their entire civilization right. was so dysfunctional, they couldn't even do the one thing that right, was they were their fucking job. Well, well, wasn't it something to do with, um, yeah, there, what, there was some, like, thing, some treaty or something saying they couldn't, right? Wasn't that the rule? Uh, I, like, they'd sign something? No, if actually I recall, so the, the part of the treaty was, like, a defense one of the Hellenistic states, which is why you had, like, the Athenians and other states coming down. The By the treaty, I believe the Spartans should have sent it, but I think there was some sort of uh, feast slash religious thing. Oh, that kept right. Them That's from, what it was, yes. That kept them from making a uh, their Senate vote on it, I want to say. Right, Or right. something That's like, but was, effectively yes. the fact that for being, that for their society being scheduled all around the military, they could not, when it was absolutely necessary, do the simple fucking thing of mobilize their army. Right, right, because, yeah. Right. It, it should be the one thing they're good at. Yeah. Right. It, it really should be. And it was, uh, you've got to assume the Persians knew that was the time when they could go in because the they were they had a festival and the Spartans were very, they were they were strict about their religious observances, I believe. Honestly, so I would uh, suspect that the Persians just didn't give a shit because they were a much huger empire. Right. Well, that's yeah. the thing about the, the Persians. Like, we talk about, oh, and then the, the Spartans beat the Persians, but 
I, I, the way I'd heard it is that the per, Xerxes army uh, was just way too big. And you think, oh, having a huge army is great. And I mean, it is in some ways, but it also makes it really, really, really unwieldy and actually doesn't give you that much of an advantage when you get too huge. Yeah, um, see, like you've, the you've got to feed everyone. Yeah. Right. You've got to feed everyone. You've got to lead them around like winding mountain passes without like losing all your men, yeah. which was where they were fighting the Battle of Thermopylae because there were it was like a narrow mountain pass, so it didn't matter how many people he had. It was just this choke point that they could yeah, fight right. them on. Um, and it's worth pointing out that, I mean, they lasted longer than anticipated. They did actually lose. Right. Because it was well, basically it was... inevitable that they would just by the right. fact that the Persian army was able to just drown them in men right yeah well, what it, from what i understand it was they held the the spartans and everyone else it wasn't just the spartans yeah held them off um for quite a while and it was real. it was fairly impressive but it was a team effort at that point right. then the persians found a way to outflank them through a mountain pass and everyone else went home, but the Spartans stayed and got wiped out. And that's why, and it was kind of a, I think the reason it's been mythologized is it's kind of a, let's play tribute to the Spartans who wouldn't give up that absolutely hopeless uh, battle that they were fighting. I think that's why it's become like romanticized by Herodotus. He was the original one uh, to write about it. Um, so that's why it's the Spartans, even though there were all the other Greeks were there too. Uh, the Spartans were just the ones who didn't give up and go home when it was clearly not that particular strategic point was not going to win. That's okay, my but understanding. Yeah, here's the thing about um, actual strategy in warfare <laughs> is that while that sounds good and heroic, as was actually pointed out by like Athenian and Thebians at the time, mm -hmm. a soldier dying for a battle that's already lost is a right. soldier you don't have for the next battle. Right. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. That was their, no, we refuse to give up and we've held where it this long. It's like, long well, story. okay, yeah. how about we don't give up a bit further down where we can reposition ourselves? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, and then they did end up fighting them again. I don't remember, was it Marathon? It was another point a bit later. Uh, but again, it wasn't just the Spartans, it was a whole ton of Greeks that all came yeah. through. And and my understanding is that the Persian War there, it was the, the really winning, the thing that really won the war was the Athenian Navy more than anything else, right? Am I am I right about that? Or am I, I wouldn't be, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I unfortunately did not learn a whole lot about this particular time Given in history. the Athenian Navy so. was very good. Right. Like there was a, there was a, there, the, the way I had heard it, I've read it one or two places is that uh, like that, cause that was a prelude. The battle of Thermopylae was kind of just, let's see if we can hold them off. And I mean, again, if we're giving Spartans the credit, the, the benefit of the doubt, it was like it, they held them off long enough for everyone else to rally really well against the, the, the Persians, but it wasn't really the ground army. It was the naval like the the way I'd heard it is that the the Athenian navy, which was very good and and strong, sort of uh, backed them into a an inlet essentially, and they didn't know uh, and got them sort of trapped in an inlet, and yes. uh, that was they were able to yeah okay actually make meat of the, the let's make a few corrections since I decided okay. to actually bring up the history before All we right. talked about it. Okay. the Battle okay. of Marathon was the first Persian invasion where oh, the right. Athenians okay. defeated. 
ended the invasion by their victory at Marathon. Right. The Battle of Thermopylae was the response or retaliation for that loss. Right. Yeah, the it Greek wasn't even force it was, was of 7,000 men, 300 of which were Sparta. Right. Yes. The... The Persians yeah, was... had between a hundred thousand and fifteen hundred, and fifteen and I'm sorry, a hundred thousand and a hundred fifty thousand. Hmm. Yeah. They, <laughs> the Persians definitely had a very big army. That was their that was their whole deal at that point. It was the, it was the, they were very badly outnumbered in general. Um, yeah. But but because and again it was and you're saying the Battle of Marathon. If I'm not mistaken, is this correcting? It was. It wasn't even Xerxes at that point, right? It was. Oh no, no, no. Sorry, it was Xerxes. Uh, it was Xerxes's dad right. who got kind of embarrassed by the Athenians at one point, well, and that was why. There's also uh, the thing. The second invasion was also ended by the Athenian navy at what was it? The Battle of Salamis, when basically right, the Athenian, Salamis, yes. yeah, where the Greek fleet. Uh, ba- uh, basically, I believe, cut off the Persian army, and thus Xerxes ordered a withdrawal due to uh, the subsequent loss from starvation and disease. <laughs> I'll do it. Uh, oh, wait, the following year, there was a final third, there is a final decisive battle at Plataea, which ended the Persian invasion. I was just wanted to look up why didn't the Spartans actually send a sufficient force? Yeah, but well, anyway, if yeah. If but anyway, take... the point of it is that despite the um, romanticization of it, it was the Athenians that won the that won and deflected the Persian invasion. Right. Yeah. As we were saying, it was the well one the idea to use the choke point was, I right. believe, Athenian strategy, mm-hmm. as was the fact to withdraw to another point once it became clear they were outflanked and thus the position couldn't be held. Mm-hmm. And two, it was the Athenian uh, navy, which really did the bulk work of repelling the Persian invasion. Right. Yeah, the, it was... the whole thing with yeah. the Persian uh, army was the phalanx formation which was very successful at its time until fucking time and progress moved on and people adapted to it, such as with the adaptation of flanking. Right. Yeah. And truth yeah. be told, if you look through this, they meant, they they mentioned the phalanx like three times. <laughs> yeah. That, and that's the only contribution Sparta really made to military anything. Well, and they didn't invent the phalanx either. It wasn't no. like they were the only ones who used that. Oh was, yeah, definitely uh, not. Well, yeah. they had developed it, but again, you know, yeah, it was it was the one thing, and then they were like, "That's it. That's all we need to do." Right. And uh, yes. let's shame everyone who's fat and make women have babies all the time. I think I think it's a little worse than shaming. I think it's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah! Oh yeah! <laughs> Throw you on the rocks if you're not uh, ready to go. Basically. And, and I mean, the funny thing reading about uh, the Spartans here in, in this is uh, 
what one of the things that apparently they did was they had to keep a everyone had to as ing mentioned earlier uh, you had to stay in a communal barracks starting from i think seven years old uh you were basically raised in a in, frat oh you were you were raised in a in a ba- barracks yeah and uh you know you you were you lived completely for the state you didn't you know really get to see your family mm-hmm. um and it, it's funny because the kind of people who worship the spartans uh they they probably hate communism right they're probably like ah oh, communism but this is kind of almost exactly how you would describe you know the nightmare version of communism <laughs> that that they would describe i don't know if they shared everything in common the way communists supposed communism is supposed to work but they literally it was like yeah you're all gonna work for the state and you're all gonna be living in a bunker all the time and watching propaganda all the time about how great the state is and you, you know what i mean it's, it's yeah bad, absolutely yeah like the state is providing everything for you so you need to be grateful and work for the state um yeah. which is essentially communism yeah, <laughs> um, so well, that, that, i mean nobody said communism is supposed to work that way it's just they say oh that's what happens under communism yeah, yeah. well here's Where, not Here's one on the list where it says that the Spartans were expected to kill themselves rather than to surrender or face uh, disgrace or, you know, lose or anything. Humiliation. Yeah. And again, as the Athenians, like, pointed out there, it's like, yeah, that's a great way to really burn through your army very quickly. (laughs) Yeah. Just a bit. Just a bit. Like, we actually have war poetry done in response to the few poems that Spartan produced, which of course was about the glory of war, which mm. is basically mocking it, them, talking about basically the effectively far smarter glor- glory of running away from a losing battle, so you don't right. throw away your life pointlessly and can do something with it. Yeah, or I don't know, retreating and regrouping isn't a bad strategy. No. <laughs> I, I, I list actually does a funny point where they talk about the the whole you've got to kill yourself rather than surrender, but then they say in the next there's a, a whole army of Spartans that were uh, taken prisoner and they weren't, and, and it literally says mass suicide wasn't an option apparently. Yeah, number twenty nine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Apparently the Spartans weren't even consistent about things. Yeah, I, I don't know. It doesn't even it doesn't even say why they chose to live in that particular instance, except I guess they had an attack of common sense. I don't know. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Because I think that one even said that the uh, Athenians who were, they were fighting at the time were surprised that they were able to take them prisoner. Right. That wasn't supposed to be the case. Exactly. Yeah, that's what it says. Uh, and then it. Then the list gets into their slaves. Yeah, which is this list? This list isn't is fairly decent about pointing out some of the bad stuff going on. It's not talking about how great the Spartans are. Well, not I all mean... the time. One of them was literally called "Preparation is Key." Yeah, and then and that one talked about the phalanx. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not a well written list. It is a very poorly written list, in my humble opinion. Um, <laughs> But at least they're not, it's not, here's how great Sparta was. Uh, like, they're mostly 
awful. I don't know. But it sounds like Ing disagrees, but I don't know. I mean, the first one is called Birth of a Nation. It's hard to... Yeah. <laughs> There's some loaded terminology there. I almost wonder if they're trying to sucker in people who go, Yeah, Spartans! Molon Labe! Or whatever they say. Truth be told, I think so. To be fair, the number 23... Like you said, the the machismo that's sort of associated with with Sparta. But to be fair, when it's getting into 23 and talking about the helots, or the slave class there that was talking that basically the uh, helots were not allowed to go out at night and were virtually executed for such crimes as... Uh, yep. Not working hard enough, not being able to work, or being too physically fit, and thus possibly a threat to Spartans. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like that. It's like, if they're too fit, they get executed. But if they're not fit enough, they get executed. And that the Spartans would actually hunt helots as part of their trading. You, in fact, had to yep. assassinate a helot yep. in order yeah. to graduate academy, mm-hmm. which at probably yep. which has that the list basically breaks down. How can there have been a time in society where this was deemed okay? And yeah, that's kind of the <laughs> like, point. Yeah. Also, mm-hmm. let's just talk about how smart the Spartans won. That, okay, the slave class to which since all of you only dedicate your energies to being an army, you are completely reliant on the yep. slave class for everything else. So yeah, go around mm-hmm. and kill the people who are physically fi- uh, capable. Yeah. That is, as you say, part of the reason their society didn't actually function very well. In the chat, Spear Hafik says the movie also drops the phallics pretty quickly because it was oh, yeah. cinematic or something. Yeah, I noticed that about the movie <laughs> when I was watching it. They didn't seem very organized. They were just kind of spazzing all over the place. Yeah, it they makes such uh... a oh yeah, three hundred makes such a big deal over the phalanx, and then they immediately abandoned it because maybe the I guess because the idea of just form a wall of dudes, yeah. form a wall of dudes, and have them move slowly forward if that while poking everyone in front of it with the pointy sticks is it cinematic (laughs) enough (laughs) yeah as as compared to hey here's a bunch of dudes running and and killing each other well you you know (laughs) mentioning 300 the movie um Mm -hmm. the the uh zach uh zach snyder of course they just announced he was going to be adapting uh ayn rand's the fountainhead apparently Uh, Um, yeah which, uh, and in general, as most people are aware, she was pretty reactionary, pretty, uh, pretty much what we would consider. I mean, she, her whole thing was capitalism, but in general, she's, she's a pretty good match with the sort of right wing reactionary, uh, mindset. Um, yeah, so she's it's the kind of inter- founder of it. Right. She's the she's the she's the rationalization for why capitalism is great and good and it's the only way to live your life. Uh but it's interesting that so then you say Zack Snyder's adapting it. When Zack Snyder adapted three hundred, um, he made a big thing about, you know, oh, this is tongue in cheek. I don't you know, I don't take it that seriously. I, I remember that very specifically. He pretended there were quote marks around everything. And it was like like when he portrayed the Persians, it was like, Well, this is kind of how the primitive Spartans would have seen the Persian army advancing on them. As black uh, people? Well, yeah. <laughs> as, as various, well, as, as like inhuman monsters with all kinds of crazy, and then the whole, yeah, and the guy had blades for arms and shit, and oh, you know, God. Like, all that kind of stuff. Like, well, I mean, I can kind of see where 
the argument is there that it was like this because you know it's this very provincial small group of 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 meatheads uh, facing you know what was the most cosmopolitan army in the world from like a huge much more technologically advanced uh, empire at that time uh, so you can sort of see the rationale of that and and Snyder made a big thing about oh this is my you know like I'm not like oh I made like I think he talked about Xerxes as kind of gay coded because that would terrify the you know meat-headed 13-year-olds ignoring the actual homosexuality of the Spartans. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's like, fuck you. No, that's to terrify the American 13-year-olds. Exactly. (laughs) That's why Xerxes is the is like the living embodiment of the big, scary uh, black cock. Right, exactly. So, okay, sorry. My wife is telling me not to scream that. <laughs> uh, but no, with the correction, it's like I'm sorry, it's, it's so over the top. It's like, why is Xerxes a giant gay man? Yeah, I mean, that because is really. I think at this point, it's just because Zack Snyder. Yeah, like, well, well, no, it's because of Frank Miller. And uh, well, that yeah, was, that's true. He is 100 percent responsible for that stuff, and. When when Snyder made it, it, he kind of at least hinted that I get that this is stupid reactionary stuff, but let's just play it straight and make it like haha. But then you know everything he's done since kind of suggests that no, he was actually serious about it, and he's not. You know, yeah, and he's or, he's he's not that tug in cheek when it comes to to how he presents things. I mean, even even Frank Miller has occasionally been defended as oh, you know, like. Sin City. Oh, it's a, it's satirical. It's not meant to be that hardcore. And mm. uh, and then he turned out to be pretty much exactly the kind of right reactionary guy that he was accused of being. So yeah, exactly. Like I've read some of the Sin City books, and it's just kind of like, no, that's not how satire works. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> it's not. I mean, unless you just the mere fact of how over the top it is is meant to be satirical but but that's not how satire works <laughs> like right. being over the top isn't being satirical necessarily mm. like not that satire can't be over the top it's just that the act of being over the top isn't satirical otherwise drag queens should be considered satire and I... then i don't think drag queens should be considered satire <laughs> so In- interesting line okay i had not well, think about it that. they drag queens are satire of women in that case and that doesn't really make any sense like no <laughs> no Fair but, uh, I yeah. mean, it's sort of an odd defense with saying look he's not being serious or trying to do like an actual nor story he's just trying to be axe cop before there was axe cop <laughs> <laughs> yeah well axe cop is genius so yeah, well, yeah, it is very... St- I remember Scott McCloud, uh, specifically, um, he did a bit where... And, I mean, he's met and spoken with Frank Miller, so it's not like he's coming out of the blue on this, but, you know, I he... he, he at the time, I remember, it, like, he, he said he went on a radio show in one of his, uh, his books. He talks about going on a radio show, and they kind of... He felt he was sabotaged by... They showed Sin City and said, why is this a serious art... Whatever, and he was kind of like, well, you know, he said he was backfooted, and he said, well, Frank Miller was trying to do something kind of 
tongue in cheek and blah 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 and and uh i you know unfortunately i think uh <laughs> time has proved him wrong on that i think it's uh i mean he still might have been able to it's just the question of i mean it, it, both could be true well it yeah it's true i mean miller definitely knew enough to to talk about being tongue in cheek and to and he has a sense of humor like he's kind of you know he's kind of being powered by the british sort of judge dread mindset for sure mm-hmm. so he he must be at least a little bit aware of it but it's just that his actual politics have not <laughs> you know in real life are so much in line with the kind of stuff he portrays you, i think whatever line there was got erased a long time ago that's all yeah Probably. I mean, supposedly his politics really changed too, for the right word. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. And, and, well, that's the interesting. I don't know if you, have you ever read um, uh, "Give Me Liberty" or the Martha Martha Washington collection? No. No. Uh, Ing, have you read it? No. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it was done with Dave Gibbons. Uh, the politics. This was 1990. I think it came out. And the okay. politics are way more interesting. They're not a straightforward, what we would call, what we would think of as Frank Miller at all. Uh, there's actually, and again, he said, he, he's, he openly said, oh, Dave Gibbons inserted a lot of his ideas into the story. But at least Miller was okay with inserting, like, like he, it's the main, the hero is a black woman. And he specifically said, yeah, I made, I made it a black woman because, you know, the character who had everything against her going in who wouldn't you know who society would be you know pushing back against the hardest um you know that's not the kind of thing you'd expect a like a hard right-wing guy to say at this point in history um and there's a few yeah. other things there's a few other aspects of it <clears throat> excuse me which yeah it seems sympathetic and like there's a you know kind of an autocratic president who's a right-wing jackass and then he gets replaced by like a left-wing kind of liberal hippie president who makes things better briefly and then things are so rotten that the president kind of collapses under the stress and things get worse again but it doesn't play like again the usual right-wing thing you expect from frank miller so it is kind of weird that he that there's that in his filmography in his filmography in his comics his bibliography um so he's he's kind of a bit of a more complex guy, maybe, than he gets credit for politically. Um, but at this point, he's definitely gone I, off the deep end. I'm going to disagree with you there, and I'm going to make it very pessimistic. Because okay. Because I'm going to actually say that that is like a stance that would seem unusual for right-wing then. It yeah. wasn't in the 90s. Probably not, no. It, Things that, have yeah, legit gotten right. worse, and the right wing has actually gotten like more racist and more intolerant right. and it's and i think people who actually uh were part of that have changed for it too it was like well remember scott adams used to be seen as kind of pro labor mm-hmm. when when dilbert came out and now he's uh yeah, and now he's calling me a loser on uh Twitter for stuff. <laughs> yes. Right. Who is yeah. The, yes. Yeah, that's right. Who is the true loser? The loser or the loser who calls you a loser because he has enough time to do that, despite having millions of dollars and living in a mansion somewhere. 
I I mean, it's objectively me, but still. No. What? It's not like he's actually produced anything worthwhile in, I what, think... over ten years? I... Look, look. Yeah. Yeah, but we're not here to blow me. Um, but the point <laughs> is... <laughs> well, it, it is true, but I, nevertheless, when I read Martha Washington, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, the Republican, like, a right-wing attitude wouldn't necessarily... And he was never really, a, like, a socially... Well, I, I mean, I don't know. He's... I don't know with, with him. But it does feel like the work of someone who hasn't drifted as far to the right as he did later. Uh, honestly, when you read it, it, it feels a bit more... Like he's still, you know, figuring things out, and he's still, he's still cool with, you know, he's not, he hasn't become the post nine eleven guy that he became later. That's that's my take. Right. On it. Yeah, and that's also, know, but, but, but pointing out that's that's pre nine eleven. I mean, that's right before there was. Oh, it's a de- he definitely this huge uh, cultural shift. Right. Yeah. Well, and then, but of course, he like three hundred is pre nine eleven, and. Uh, uh, Sin City is pre nine eleven, so he was kind of moving in that direction already. <laughs> like those are both from the ninety, so that you can't just say nine eleven with this guy. You've got to say he was fascist curious before that. I guess. <laughs> he, 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 if want to get like uh, gossipy about it, what the supposed thing with Frank Miller shifted is a two things is one is I believe being a victim of a uh, st- uh, street violence mugging. Oh yeah. Really? Yes. Which I believe made him uh less sympathetic according to reports and the other is rumor of genuine serious uh, alcoholism related health issues. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, he's he has not looked well in anything I've seen in the last <laughs> decade or so. He's he looks rather uh, frail, uh, aged beyond his years, unfortunately. Uh, so who knows? But yeah, it's it's uh, it's uh, anyway. Who knows? But probably Doing shouldn't. Stupid. <laughs> probably shouldn't speculate. But yeah, he's definitely he was definitely been drifting to the right. And it, it's funny because that seems to happen with a lot of people where they're kind of they play act being this reactionary and then they be become reactionary in real life like it it's almost they they were and like all the action movie hollywood stars tend to be right wingers and it's almost like they did that because they were so used to playing big macho tough guys that that became their real politics you know what i mean yeah i mean with the exception of sylvester stallone who as far as i can tell is relative lefty still probably not like hardcore marxist or anything but like you know, he's, he seems to be a little bit, as opposed to, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who runs for, for office on the right and so forth. But um, that, I, I always find it, I've said this before on in other places, I always find it interesting with um, Gene Roddenberry, uh, because I don't believe he was that much of a left-wing guy in the 60s when Star Trek originally launched. Um he was a cop and an ex navy guy and he was very anti racist but he but i don't think his politics what we would call on the left side of the spectrum um but i think that over the decades after trek was off the air he kind of went um like people embraced it for kind of the the post uh, what what do you call post scarcity culture and 
utopianism and general sort of vaguely Marxist attitude of it. Um, the uh, the general sort of tone of what he was doing, I think, uh, because he got so much confetti thrown at him for that, uh, like in the, by the 70s, he's, he's writing very like leftist stuff. Like he wrote the, the introduction to one of the Star Trek novels and he talked about how, you know, he, oh, I envisioned it as much more, you know, almost pseudo-communist and like all this other stuff. And I think it was a case of, you know, his own creation moved him to the left the way that other people's creations sometimes move them to the right. Uh, I, I just mm. find that really, I, from what I've seen, I, 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 this is somewhat speculation, but a lot in the original Star Trek. Uh, uh, I, I mean, yeah. I think they're, we have our oh, here, I have something soft to throw at you. <laughs> Go home, Gopi, you're drunk. <laughs> okay. Um, well, personally, and maybe this, I don't have an incredibly in-depth knowledge of Star Trek, but I always read them as being socialists, like, even before I knew what socialism was. So... Yeah, it, it, it drifted in that direction. Like, my, under, my general framework, and, and don't get me started about Star Trek, I'm the Star Trek nerd. Uh, but That's okay. My, like, what we, we always go, oh, yeah, Gene Grunberry created Star Trek. But if you look at the history, like, there's that oral history of Star Trek that came out recently, and they talk about how, um, like... Gene Roddenberry, in many ways, he was kind of involved in the first chunk of the first season. That was his really hands-on. Mm. And then uh, people, especially Dorothy Fontana and Gene L. Kuhn, came in, and they were really um, the, the 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 people who were the standard bears for Trek through till late in the second season. From that point on, so they actually had as much to do with shaping Trek as Gene Roddenberry did. Uh, and Roddenberry's idea, like the very early Star Trek, does not have nearly as much of what you would call the socialist stuff in there. Um, it's sure they all have, you know, like it, they're in the military, so they have like free food all the time and stuff like that. But they talk yeah. about having, they talk about having a, a currency, and they talk about, you know, a lot of and just the general idea that they're space cops or space navy people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's not what you would call what I would call leftist by 60 standards or by modern standards. Uh, I think that kind of it, it, Star Trek is a whole horde of different people with different ideologies, kind of all talking at each other at once. <laughs> the original show, especially that's my take on it. Yeah. That, that really seems to be the case uh, with the original show. Um, yeah. And, and you're right. He probably didn't mean for it to become what it was, but then it did. And yeah. No, yeah, better by or worse. Age, by the age, <laughs> there was a Star Trek philosophy that everyone would kind of bought into, but it's mm. slightly retroactive and not completely in keeping with what the actual show was. Yeah, if you watch, which is always kind of interesting to me. But but retroactively, we all go, oh yeah, Star Trek. It's the leftist, progressive, uh, utopian, vaguely socialist future. Well, it definitely so, got that yeah. by TNG. Yeah. Oh no, by TNG. Oh yeah, no, TNG was all about that. <laughs> Although TNG even, was all about that. Even TNG actually had a bit of an interesting thing in the early years where, like the early year, the, the first half of the first season, again, there was some stuff, like there was one episode that was really super racist. Uh, oh, God. Code of um, Honor, it's called. And it yeah. was, it was yeah. like, people were actually fired over that episode, from what I understand. And people like, you know, like mo- most of the cast, and uh, I think Gene Roddenberry himself, although he was kind of, he was a bit out of it at that point, but... Several people kind of went, 
what the hell is this episode? What are you doing? We gotta, we gotta, and they, there was a big shakeup of the, of the writers at that point and the directors. Uh, so it, it almost could have been hijacked by more Reagan era stuff if they hadn't been careful, I think. So, uh, here, but, so here's yeah, an interesting thing about that. That was supposed to be a fairly, that was, the intention was supposed to be how do you deal with something with basically not wanting to bully a more primitive people when they pull shit on you. Right. And that's what the script was written about. The script, if I remember the rumors and everything correct, did not actually specify that everybody in this culture was black. Right. Or that their uh... culture was based around African. That was seemingly the decision of the director that also, let's say, some cast members had difficulties with. And that there's a reason why Michael Dorn is not present in that episode. Right. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> despite, the, uh, despite, as my wife and I joke, the obvious reason that if Worf was actually present for this issue, this whole problem would not be a full episode. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of a shame that's that's one of old Tasha Yar's only big episodes, really, too. Yeah. But uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was it was definitely there was some behind the scenes um, battling over what the show was going to be based based on that, unfortunately. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's it was it, it, there's there's always been much more of a diversity. Well, diversity, not even necessarily in a good way, of of ideas uh, battling for supremacy over. Uh, who was going to be in charge of Trek uh, for a long time, right. even, even into, and I, I mean, even the um, the movies, uh, like, as much as we all love Wrath of Khan, it is one of the more militaristic Trek, sh- uh, Trek uh, movies. And um, yeah. The Final Frontier is interesting because people have read it as Shatner kind of mock, because he's the director, right? He's They've read it as mm-hmm. him kind of, thumbing his nose at Trek and not necessarily agreeing with its ideals because it shows uh, it's it's about a planet where humans, uh, Vulcans, Federation uh, Vulcans or Romulans and Klingons are all supposed to be establishing a colony together and it's just failed very badly. Um, And that almost seemed like they were saying, of course, they'll never be able to live together. Ha ha. Let's not be silly. Um, So that's kind of a, you know, there, there are, bits and pieces of Trek for much of its early years where you can kind of go, wait a minute, you know, some of the people making this were arguing with the fundamental principles of Star Trek. Although I think it's hard to read anything coherent in the final frontier, given that it's uh, production history. Right. Yes, that is, that is, uh, that is definitely a bit of a mess that, that movie, no, no matter what, um, I, I like, I, I honestly have always said Final Frontier, like if you described it in like, if you gave it a treatment, it would sound like the best Star Trek movie of them all. Uh, it's one of the ones that's truest to some of the ideas of Star Trek. Like they're actually exploring in that one. Um, they encounter, the, plus they encounter a godlike entity and, and just, and that's something that happened on like every episode of the show. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, but, whatever you think about Roddenberry, he did not like religion. Full no. stop. Well, <laughs> the original. Full stop. Uh, he was. He, he did not like religion. Well, the motion picture, the first movie, uh, yeah. was originally going to have Kirk literally fighting God at the end. 
And um, oh, that seems to have basically made its way to Final Frontier, because that's basically what happens at the end of Final Frontier. <laughs> so it seems like Shatner kind of went, oh, yeah, yeah, I want to fight God. That's great. That's I want to do that. <laughs> and well, just insert Shatner that the, that the uh, best... ego joke here. Yeah. Well... <laughs> Uh, I'm basically God, right, guys? That's me, right? I mean, yes, exactly. in his defense, Wrath of Khan actually did present Kirk as the God equivalent to Khan Saint Lucifer. <laughs> yeah, well, that is. It made it. It oh, made a point. It made a point that there's two big uh, literary references that it digs deep on when they make a point of showing it that those are the books Khan has in exile of Paradise Lost and Moby Dick. Right. Ah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Moby Dick especially, but yeah. Right, yeah, but exactly. Khan yeah. is the figure that is uh, damned to rule in hell, so right. who is the person that banished him who he thus rages against? That would be mm-hmm. uh, Kirk, the Shatner is God. Right. Oh right. my gosh. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it is in there for sure. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, and I guess I almost feel like that became a bit of a joke is portraying Captain Kirk as a godlike entity or, or a, and it was almost tied into Shatner's ego. But that's always been how he was treated, even from the very beginning of the show. It was always Captain Kirk, uh, you know, he, he, he'll face down God and, uh, which is actually a giant computer and logic it to death and it'll explode. That's that's the standard Star Trek template, right? The, of the classic show. Me, pretty much. <laughs> Somebody, I, I, people pointed this out, but the uh, the Edgar Wright movie, um, uh, The World's End, is basically a Star Trek story because it's a it's it's him facing down a computer, a god computer, at the end and talking it to death. Believe it or not, <laughs> I haven't seen that one. I don't oh, yeah? see that one either. Oh my gosh, guys! Uh, sorry, I'm vague. Well, not really spoiling it. I'll but forget it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's no, it's really good. Well, I, I see a lot of people think it's one of his weakest, but I actually really enjoyed it because it deals with addiction in a an interesting way. I think uh, that's hmm. basically what it's about. Uh, but it's also Invasion of the Body Snatchers slash Star Trek uh, with with the worst possible Captain Kirk, Simon Pegg as the. Uh, completely uh train wreck of a captain kirk if you like <laughs> okay no that's not it's not an overtly star trek movie but when i heard edgar <laughs> when i heard edgar wright was possibly going to be involved with one of the later star treks i was like yep yeah, he's clearly a star trek fan so that yeah. was kind of, and then of course simon pegg is star trek the new gener- the new movies as well and simon scotty. pegg is literally scotty yes, yes exactly yeah he's been on both star wars and star trek so you can't really uh get away from that we should watch there watch the world's end there's many different levels on which we could critique it but obviously i can't talk about it now because you haven't seen it so there you go i recommend it um shall we okay so yeah the other bit of clickbait that you gave us uh ing which is kind of sorry uh, we got way off the reservation today that's okay but it does we went seg- from we went from Sparta to Star Trek, and I am okay but, with that. <laughs> but we did we did we did segue into Star Wars, which is a nice uh, segue into our next yeah. uh, our next uh, clickbait here. Sure, and it was the hot topic of last week on Twitter. Yep. <laughs> I don't think anyone actually read this article because you don't really need to read it. Like even just skimming through it, it's just kind of like, who watches Star Wars for the romance? Oh, right. <laughs> <What it> does. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, 
Fuck, romance, I yes. This, I can't get the damn article up. So the the title is Sex and Star Wars. Here's why it's about time. Yes, it's that article that probably everyone saw a while ago about, well, they need to have a sex scene in a Star Wars movie. They don't most Is it time for Star Wars not. to have a sex scene? Uh, Short yes, answer. Yes, because that's what you want in your family-friendly franchise. Yes. A sex scene. Short answer, no. Long answer, no. (laughs) (sighs) There's many points to be made. My favorite one is that so straight people are literally basically want to put uh, actually full-on fucking into the children slash all-ages franchise before they acknowledge gay people. Yeah. Or at least acknowledge gay people on screen. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I just, you know, gonna leave this box of salt just over here, you know, next to. Just <laughs> fill this R2D2 uh, salt shaker. It's part of the him He's and BB 8. Yeah. <laughs> the, well, the BB 8 is the pepper we... pot, so. Um, it's a set. <laughs> it was a wedding gift. Um, the other to is. To be fair, we have the longest lasting gay marriage in pop culture with C3PO and R2D2, but. Yes. Um, yeah, I know it's not. Well, I actually have. <laughs> well, they I... technically aren't gendered, so right. They're technically not gendered, but their relationship, one could argue, even though it isn't sexual, is more or less the equivalent of significant other. This is Absolutely. true. I mean, this is quite and, true. and it gets into oh. the inherent queerness of AI and robots. There, that fundamentally, any things about stuff and relationships like that are off the blueprint of the standard heteronormative there. So you're not wrong. Yep. And I think in one of our last discussions, you mentioned that BB-8 is also in a relationship with another bot. Yeah. In the Poe Dameron comic, it's cute. Yeah. It's supposed to be really, really cute. I need to read it. (laughs) Is the other does the other bot speak or does it just make beeps and whistles? It, it's a another astromech unit, so yeah, it just beeps. Uh, okay. Well, the I mean, to me, the, well, the interesting thing is, until this latest, until Solo, the droids were always coded as male. Even R two D two, like they literally, he's gendered. Like they refer to him as he constantly throughout the movies. There's well, no question. Well, that's because if it doesn't have tits, that means it's not female. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> yeah, to uh, But that does mean that he and the C three PO are are yeah. you know, are in a gay relationship. Oh yeah, but it um, again it's also the thing that's like, well, yeah, but it's male coded pretty much only because you refer to them as male. There's this is actually a right. plot point and brought up in the Discworld things when they start doing with golems, which are basically the fantasy oh, yeah. equivalent of droids there, where uh they're there, it's meant as a, or at least presented as this is just going to be a throwaway joke that uh, old woman protests at the idea that golems, which she sees as men, are cleaning mm-hmm. the women's restroom because men shouldn't be allowed in there. And mm-hmm. the character in charge of the golems at this at this thing tries to explain, well, they're not really man. And then realize, well, yeah, they're not. We just sort of defaultly act as if they're men. They really don't have any gender. They're they're sexless clay beings. And mm-hmm. decides, rather than trying to explain this whole thing to the old woman, he's simply going to order 
uh, change one golem's name to Gladys and order it to wear a dress. So it will right. be yep. the lady golem yes. in charge of cleaning the lady's bathroom. And then later we see that from doing this enough, that golem now fully identifies as a lady golem. Right. Also, the, the lady golem also gets educated on what it means to be a lady in very, yeah. very archaic terms. And then later, eventually, more modern terms. Right, right. but it's the thing there that now, because it was given that instruction that, or that people had to start, or that people started treating it as if it was female, it responded in turn by assuming that identity. And that's... Like, the fundamental gender queerness of robots in literature. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the, like it actually came up yeah. in uh, Force Awakens, where people were asking what gender is BB-8, mm -hmm. because right. I believe in interviews they kind of interchangeably used either he or she talking about it, and that was kind of pointed out, it's like, well, it's a robot, it really doesn't have one. Right. Yep. But even BB-8 is still tends to have he pronouns instead of she pronouns, yeah. or even well, they. Well, I didn't, but I didn't know they'd referred to BB-8 as a woman, as a she, uh, in our interviews. That's interesting. If they did that deliberately, that's actually kind of cool. <laughs> like I, they didn't, they, they went, yeah, sure, we may as well call it. Call, yeah, call I think it, it was. Her, I don't think it was whatever. intentional. I think it simply was that certain actors actually, for some reason, pegged the character as more female and referred to it as her. Right. Which well, but right. Then that is, but that's which exactly fans it, had so actually that... done as well. Hence, why it was brought up as a question. Right. <laughs> right. Huh. And that's uh, that's yeah. But well, but that is interesting that some actors would go, "Oh yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a woman. It's a it's a girl droid." Yeah. Um, because just to to do that naturally, it, well, that's one of the issues. There are two big issues with <clears throat> the depiction of AI in SF, which is the uh, the sex the sex thing and the and the the gender thing, or the sex thing and the race thing are the two big issues. Because of course you can see them as essentially transferring a lot of our worst impulses about wanting, like if you want a, a basically a slave uh but if you build a robot it's okay but they're still sentient beings and they're you know they can relate to you and so forth it's like are you just essentially transferring all your you know all your sublimated uh you know historical issues with <laughs> with with slavery onto ai who are okay because they're just robots and they're built to do that um, but you're not dealing with the fundamental issue of, yeah, but I want a, a person who can work for me tirelessly and do everything I say. And I'm the boss of them. Um, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a lurking subtext there. That's, that's not the best. And then when you gender them and they're, if they're, because it, it's not unusual for robots to be women, to be gendered as women, because then it's like, well, now I've got my, uh, blow up doll, except she can talk to me, you know, kind of thing. Um, it, it's, Here's another thing there, that can there's some you. subtext, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, there there was the whole Alexa thing because they apparently Amazon made Alexa a feminist, and that pissed off a bunch of dude bros. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so, it's kind of kind of funny. Yeah. Well, wasn't wasn't there a story or something about someone who did build or like a gag and a I want to say Futurama, but I don't know if that's what it was, where someone made it had a robot 
girlfriend, but then the robot girlfriend didn't want to have anything to do with it. Well, I guess that's basically Bride of Frankenstein. Well, but, um, I do think that there was a Futurama episode that was like that, and I don't remember. Sem- yeah, no, there's definitely been remember. a few that, that... Yeah. And then that's also considering in Futurama, at least until one of the more recent seasons, it was taboo for robots and humans to have sex. So... Right. <laughs> that yeah, that I remember. It was you, you're not robots and humans are not supposed to date each other because Don't. that caused the collapse of society before at one point. Right. Um, he hasn't seen so the propaganda film. And yeah. then there was and then there was the more recent episode where I think Finn and Layla kept dying or they died so they had to make robot versions of them and then the robot versions eventually fell in love with each other and ran away. Oh, I yeah, think that's I what it was. That. <laughs> I've, only, I've only seen the, the new ones like once, so I don't remember them that well. But yeah, yeah. Something, something like that, yeah. But then, yeah, but the, 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 the running gag on Futurama is whether it's okay for humans don't date robots and whether that's acceptable or not. Well, it, it also and uses Bender the was... fact that the robots being ridiculously human as a joke. Yeah. Right. But literally the point that the robots are so human that it's pointless, why would anybody make robots like this, is sort of the ongoing joke. Right, exactly. Pretty much. Um, Pretty much. Yeah, it's all a variation on The Simpsons where the robot comes out of the lab on fire and goes, Why? Why was I programmed to feel pain? (laughs) (laughs) Um... But yeah, actually, for the issues, at least on, like, the idea of the artificial beings as slave one, again, Discworld does actually some good stuff with that. With the golems and how they basically work to buy themselves out of servitude. Yeah, and it also has with the idea that, like, golems are clearly useful and a lot of people would like a golem to do their work for them, but... Mm -hmm. The golems don't. They're also scared of them, right? And it's pointed out that the thing there actually has never been a thing that golems are incapable of actually hurting a person. Yeah, because they basically have. uh, Yeah, and part of the joke for what the uh, Asmodeus law of robotics are—they have the Ten Commandments written in them, as part of which includes uh, their chem, so they cannot uh, disobey or kill someone. And it gets the thing that, like, maybe people are so... And it has one character basically speculate that people are so afraid or so sure that a golem is going to hurt them because maybe we at some level feel we deserve it because of how we treat them. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's... There's been a lot of... Literally, the first... If I understand... I need to see this at some point. But literally, the very first story from which we get the word robot, uh, which is uh, R-U-R by Carol Capek, I think his name is. Uh, that was that very early 20th century play uh, about robots. Uh, and it literally, it has the robots rising up and overthrowing their human masters. And I believe the story is very much um, sympathetic to the robots uh, and that the robots deserve to inherit the world and destroy their human masters. And I believe it's also a basically a communist uh, story oh, that yeah. is portraying the yeah. robots as the proletariat and the humans as the bourgeoisie. So ah. that's the uh, the subtext as well, I believe. 
but um they but yeah that's like we've been sympathetic we've been sympathetic to the robots <laughs> for a very long time as long as they almost as long as they've been in fiction i think so well yeah and and most of ai fiction these days is the the opposite where where we're afraid of the 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 supposed the supposed lower caste rising up and taking over even though there's probably a good reason for it yeah yeah i just feel like there's always been that thread of i mean sure there's killer robots there's always been killer robots just to you know it's okay to you know for he-man to fight ro- or whoever i don't know who who fought robots somebody somebody had ba- samurai jack he always fought robots and it was okay because they're just robots so he could carve them up um, yeah, except but, that they did a whole episode that just oh followed God. a robot right before it met Jack and died to, <laughs> yeah. to specifically highlight that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but that, yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly the kind of issue that you inevitably run into when you start actually dealing with robots in that regard, I think. Yeah. Um, like, it almost you almost can't help but think of it. Uh, like, well, what about the robots are talking and acting like humans? Aren't they are brethren? You know, you, well, if you have... and and I also think that part of it also is robots who are designed specifically to be murder robots versus robots who are sentient and decide to be murder robots. Like, right. there's always that distinction that's always made as well. Like the the ones we sympathize with are the ones that that. that are sentient and end up coming to that choice rather than the ones who are just sort of made that way. Well, but I mean, the the Terminator is literally about a a robot. That's what he's for. And by the second movie, it's like, well, can a Terminator learn the, if a Terminator can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. You know, so that, again, it it almost inevitably comes up when you start dealing with that, (laughs) that subject matter, you start to kind of address that. Uh, just by talking and then about it becomes anyway. right, and then it becomes a matter of well, how advanced is his AI and yeah. that sort of thing, and can it learn? Is it is right. how much programming can you really put into something? So, yes. <sighs> but anyway, sex in Star Wars. Yeah, boy, we got there. off topic, and that's something yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that never happens. But sex in Star Wars is just like no, just stop. Well, because once again, nobody watches Star Wars for any of the romance that ever happens because it's well, either. Well, hang on. Now, people, it's people just... like Han and Leia. That's not true. That's that's a good element of the story, Han and Leia. Don't you think? Um. Okay. Yes, but since prequels, it, it it has it's slightly problematic because he's a little bit abusive in some scenes. <laughs> um, it's it's something that you have to kind of go back and rewatch with a slightly different mindset because he's he gets a little aggressive but mm. other than that Han and Leia it works mostly because it's not at the forefront um, right. yeah. it's it's a subplot so once yeah. again you're not watching Star Wars for that <laughs> if if you're watching Star Wars for the Han and Leia subplot then you're kind of missing all of the major plots that are happening is really my main point on and Leia, I mean, well, of course, that's not the reason you throw on Star Wars, but I think it's a fundamental a bit of the original trilogy. And I think it's worth noting that the relationship has been the model for a lot of pop culture relationships 
for years after that um, to a possibly unhealthy degree. But just that whole idea of, well, they bicker. Oh, they suddenly start switching. Like that's, that's definitely something we saw a lot of for years afterwards. That's Um, true. Yeah. But that particular dynamic has also existed for quite a long time, even even I, I would say that Han and Leia likely popularized it though. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of modeling on um, like thirties comedies, I think to a certain extent, but it's, I, I feel like we didn't see it click into that exact form until we saw Han and Leia right. in the original Star Wars. So that's, I mean, that's my general take. And like I say, there's a, there's a slightly, it's true. There's an aggressive undercurrent there that isn't the best thing in the world. Um, mm. But I mean, I think generally you can you can excuse Hannah Leia. But th- I think that the general attitude of like, well, well, they do nothing but fight, and then they kiss each other, and that's not the best, you know, guide to a relationship. Is like if they're they're they seem to hate each other <laughs> up till they start smooching. Um, you know, that's a little with the the, the nadir of that being Sky Captain in the world of tomorrow. Um, <laughs> where they literally just, why do they, they don't like each other at all in that movie, you know? I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, I've only seen bits of it, so. Yeah. <laughs> they go way overboard in the, oh, they they hate each other. Oh, but they're actually masking love kind of thing. It's like, yeah, but you don't buy that they're in love at all. Mm. Uh, it, it's not, they, they, it's mostly just them fighting the whole time. So it's, and it's, yeah, I was also going to argue, I think, that there's more to that than the, with the Han and Leia one. That yeah. it's not just they hate each other. I mean, like, coming from Empire, at least, it is presented like they have gotten along and are close and are now uh, having a fight. Right. Well, yeah. It's kind of, the, the idea is that they're abrasive to each other, which yeah. is not the same as though they hate each other. Right. It's just they right. they kind of, they push each other's buttons right from the, right from the start. Like, right away, right. the first thing that happens when they meet is they start bickering, right? Yeah. Like, it's not, that's, that's how they present to each other right from the beginning. But then yeah. we start, and it, but it's believable that they kind of fall into a clinch eventually. You can see there's some rhythm there. And of course there was, as we found out recently in real life, between Carrie Ford yeah. and Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford. Um, so, I mean, that's it's all about that unquantifiable, you know, chemistry. I guess. <laughs> but just writing your characters as they fight each other, I think it's not always the best way to write it. And I, I do appreciate that people aren't necessarily going for that as much as they mm-hmm. used to, because that, that used to be just the template in an event. The Sam and Diana. The hero and the heroine bicker all yeah. yeah. Well, so, with Sam and Diane, at least it was like first they generally like and second of five seasons to before they. How, when did they get together? Like in the third season? That I'm had, not even. I don't remember specifically when they got together. No, and we could yeah, not they had down a, another Fraser extended universe hole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was. <laughs> But they had a long time to sort of flesh out and develop their relationship. And again, it was the sort of, oh, well, you, nobody can get under your skin, their skin unless you really care about them. That's kind of the fundamental idea of all this. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I mean, there's a certain truth to that, I guess. But, uh, you know, it's just it became very cliched and very, 
uh, half half-assed way of doing the the romantic plot. Well, it's the thing uh, that I... when used too much, the troop become the trope becomes mm-hmm. a cliche. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Essentially. And I mean, and I mean the thirties. I, I always I to me. Uh, I'd like to see uh, the uh, Nick and Nora Charles template <laughs> become more popular. That was always that's the great uh, adventure romance template uh, from that from the 30s as well. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, no, unfortunately, I don't. Unless you know the trope, like the trope that they that they're named after. Well, they are uh, they're the characters of the Thin Man. Um, they're from the 1930s, um, and they're they're a married couple. Actually, it starts with their married. It, I think for our generation, the way to describe it would be um, uh, 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 Gomez and Morticia Adams. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> I would like to see that come back. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they more cr- relationships should be like Gomez and Morticia. <laughs> exactly. And they, 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 and the thing is, so they're quipping to each other all the time, but it's because they're 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 sort of a Great Gatsby era type wits, and they're they're coming up with. Uh, wise cracks at each other while they solve crimes together, which is the the Thin Man movies. Uh, they're very entertaining. Okay. They're a lot of fun. Those movies. And I've, I have I'll seen have them. I'll have to see them. <laughs> I have seen them. Uh, I have seen people attempt to replicate. Like I say, I think Gomez and Morticia are kind of, uh, in some ways, a nod to that. Okay. Uh, but th- but that's be- when you see sort of that. It's almost over the top how much they like each other kind of attitude. Uh, that's, okay. that's what I'm thinking of, you know. Oh, okay, but, gotcha. Well, once again, I do think that more relationships should be yeah. should be shown that way. Yeah. I mean, granted, Gomez and Morticia are a very specific case, mostly because they're very yeah. clearly in love, but it's yeah. it's slightly macabre. <laughs> I'm not oh, even yeah. sure if I'm saying that right. Macabre. <laughs> they both murdered people. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so it's it's a little bit dark, but it's still very endearing. So uh-huh. there's definitely a way to to play play on that without being too saccharine about it. Mm. Which, um, if we want to get to the prequels of Star Wars, that was sort of the main issue. Is that not so much that it was saccharine; it was just that it took over the plot. It should have been a subplot, but it was the plot. <laughs> I think it's I think it's telling. They were not allowed to have sex. Um, that was actually yeah. a plot point. If we're talking about sex in Star Wars, uh, that was literally something that they he took off the table. Which you know, it was a nod mm-hmm. to sort of Buddhist monks and stuff. Obviously, it wasn't coming out of nowhere, but um, it seemed like an unnecessary thing just to create tension. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's. Uh, to bring up Discworld again, it's mostly the idea of not... Because in Discworld, wizards aren't supposed to have sex, uh, mostly because wizards fight a lot with each other. So if wizards go off and have kids, their kids will be more powerful. And then the whole idea with one of the books is that the eighth son of the eighth son is a sorcerer, which means he has unfathomable magical powers and that's basically the same idea with the jedi is that they can't go off and have more jedi babies because they'll all be too powerful and god knows what will happen (laughs) i like that but to point it out discworld has also given the explanation that that's a retroactive justification for the fact that a lot of wizards are men who have trouble getting women's attention (laughs) yeah there is that (laughs) there is also that (laughs) 
It's the rules. Well, it's uh, that's interesting about though the Je- the idea that oh the Jedi will get too powerful uh, because I mean that's arguably exactly why Luke is able to survive. But that's almost what they're saying with the Last Jedi. And to me, one of the most interesting things of the Last Jedi is that uh, they're sort of saying, well, it's not about having you know nice genetic bloodlines and everything. It's you know there's Force users out there, and there's people who should be Jedi. Uh, or there's at least people. The force should belong to everyone. Essentially, yeah. uh, it's not about the Jedi have you know being able to be uh, the gatekeepers of it, uh, which is I think the main. Even though Luke didn't articulate it in that way, I think that's basically what he was saying uh, right. in the Last Jedi. And, and so that the whole oh well, we don't want the Jedi forming uh, you know relationships. That you know that's almost going against what we're now seeing in the Last Jedi, where it's like yeah, well you know it's everyone can be a force user. And I think that's, I think that's actually going to be crucial in Star Wars going forward. Just the idea that it's not about this special order of snooty Jedi. It's about, you know, giving the force to everyone basically. So that's an interesting thing. That, well, or that everyone is theoretically capable of using the force. It's yeah, just, or, yeah. Well, they, yeah. they, I mean, they've, they've been implying that it is a, an inherited trait, mm-hmm. i.e. the force is strong in my family. Right. Uh, but the um, and then but and when you see the kid at the end of the Last Jedi using like moving his broom around with his mind, uh, like I think that's meant to suggest that yeah okay there's people who are force sensitive and people who aren't but maybe not I, again this is exactly what maybe they'll be getting into is what, to what degree is it a gen- genetic thing and to what degree is it just you know anyone could use the force if they wanted to. Well, yeah. Been, <laughs> well, in the philosophy idea there, it's that, in a sense, every living thing does use the Force or is influenced or can influence it. Hence, you know, mm-hmm. it's the thing that Han attributes his sort of stuff to good luck, and Obi-Wan comes out and tells him that he doesn't believe in luck. Right. That's which, right. Which... Mm-hmm. Given, you know, what Obi-Wan believes, this gives the implied thing that the displays of, as it's been argued, the displays of luck that we see of Han are at some level using the Force as well. He's just unknowingly using the Force. Yeah, but it's also pointed out that it's also a reoccurring motif in Star Wars of uh, ordinary people in, like, really drastic situations where it matters the most, we see something similar like that. Like, we see that with Rose's sister in The Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, there's always some sort of hairbreadth escapes and yeah. one in a million shots and things like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's... But, I mean, I, I don't think you have to go with this elaborate, oh, yes, Han is Force-sensitive. I think it's just like, well, the Force exists... And it moves people around according to what it needs. Uh, you know, not that it's necessarily sentient, but it's kind of. I mean, it's it's the force is essentially um, Tao in uh, yeah. in uh, Taoism, from what mm-hmm. I can understand. It's a sens- It's very similar to that concept. Um, so that and the Tao is you know everything serves the Tao and it takes you where you need to go. And some people understand it better than others, but it's affecting everyone anyway. Um, so I think that is kind of what they're going for, and that's a good way to frame it because you're not 
you know, you're not taking an elitist attitude anymore. You're just saying, yeah, and well, if you know. You think about it, it's the thing that the Force drives everyone through there. Han basically lives his life effectively drifting and <clears throat> responding where life in the universe takes him. And as a result of that, relies a lot on the good luck from that. Right. So, yeah, it yep. could be argued that is it force using or is it just luck? Well, there's not really a difference. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 and I mean, on the larger scale, it's just, we're in a story and uh, the, yeah. narr- the author is moving us around or the creator, the filmmakers are moving us around to where we need to be. These plot so, points need to happen, so they will happen. So that's the real force right there. It's a, it's a Again, as thing. this is going to come up a lot in uh, Discworld, has that where it's explicitly written into the universe. So you get such great things as people have acknowledged that it is a uh, scientific observable fact of statistics that stuff that should Narrative. be a one in a million so shot happens yeah. actually <laughs> one in ten times. Yeah. <laughs> so you get right. things like people realizing that it's a hopeless cause because it's like a thousand to one shot, and then they start putting handicaps on themselves to try to make it a one in a million shot so that right. the odds will suddenly be on their side. Yeah, he's like he's like balancing on his leg with one eye closed yeah, and a, all of this other stuff. It's great. In a parody my, of the bar shooting it. smog. <laughs> right. My favorite iteration of that, like when characters try to sort of hack the narrative. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read Doctor McNinja. No, um, but I've I'm heard aware of it. Of it. He, he he basically observes that ninjas, a, a lone ninja, uh, essentially is the hero, although he doesn't say that, is an unstoppable force of badass, you know, weaponry. But if you have an army of ninjas, uh, they go down very easily. Uh, so. If you're attacked by an army of ninjas, uh, and and this uh, Dr. Ninja, at one point, of course, he's a great warrior because he's a lone ninja. But at one point, he actually has a bunch of clones of himself, uh, and they're all attacking this one guy, and he's like an 80s-type hero. And Dr. McNinja basically goes, oh my god, I'm now part of an army of ninjas, which makes me vulnerable to this guy in a way I wasn't before because an army of ninjas can be taken out by one lone tough guy very easily. So he literally starts, he literally says, okay, I'll pretend to be his partner and take down all my own clones and that'll keep me alive because I'll be a part of a team up fighting an army of ninjas. Oh my God. That'll, that'll, that'll allow me to survive because otherwise I would be doomed because I'd be part of an army of ninjas. <laughs> so, I know Discworld has lampshaded that before the, where it's Discworld... like a group of people and they're all against one guy and the group of people is like, no, we won't fight him because he's just one guy. Yeah, right. We know how this works. Specifically, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was the uh, Silver Horde, which is the last hero, the last Conan oh. the Barbarian style heroes of Discworld right. and they're yeah. all over octogenarian age they're they're like they're truly ger- geriatric yeah like mm-hmm. but, but think of geriatric and then add add a hundred years but they are great <laughs> warriors by virtue of not dying the longest so they're really good yeah. at being barbarians right. right to have lived that long while being a barbarian you have to be really good at it and it has that there's a, the official hero's code, which is effectively doing a scientific observation of how the narrative works. 
and it has one time they basically decided that they want to kill the guards, and they find themselves like a bunch of people strong, a bunch of uh, grisly seasoned barbarians up against one lone man standing against certain death to stop them, and they stop mid-charge realizing, oh wait, in this scenario we lose. Yeah. Because that's how it goes, because according to the code, that's how things work. And it also has the thing that there was a that the uh, old style evil overlords that fought barbarians back then had an elaborate series of treaties with them and their own honor code, thus right. establishing how evil overlords had to act. Yep, <laughs> including the okay. quite humorous thing where in this scenario they're allied with one of their former enemies, who's an evil overlord, who because of the narrative code has to betray them even though he wants them to succeed. <laughs> but it's... it is written into the code that if the evil overlord aligns with the hero, he has to betray them. <laughs> Which one is that in? Uh, the last hero. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't read that one. Yeah, it's, that's good. There's still some Discworld books I haven't read, so there you well, go. Well, there's a lot of Discworld books, so I that's know, understandable. There's like 60 fucking books. Yeah. I, I still haven't finished Raising Steam for some strange reason. I just can't seem to finish that book, and I'm not even sure where it is now. But mm. that's the only one I haven't read, besides yeah. a lot of the short stories. Yeah. So, <sighs> Yes. Yes, we are all... We're all I know we're all Discworld fans here. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, also, well, I think we've... Sorry, go on. Uh, pointing out that we should be glad Star Wars doesn't have sex because it's the only thing that gives plausible deniability that Luke and Leia didn't sleep together. Well, I don't. People, I think I saw you see that on Twitter. Yeah, I, don't I, mean, I agree that's a because I, I, I think it's we can always joke. agree it was hand and. I know. I, it, I know, but it was. It. I mean, I was making a joke, but <laughs> because it's. I think the only reason she even kissed Luke was to make hand jealous. Yeah, that I was... don't think she was ever that into Luke at all. Uh, despite what you would say about it, I think. I think it's always been. She liked Han, and she didn't like uh, she didn't like Luke. Yeah. Uh, like like I say, despite the awkward retcon uh, that they're brother and sister, um, I, I I'm pretty sure no, they didn't. They and on top of which, she's a princess, so she's not uh, <laughs> she's not DTF most of the time anyway. So, <laughs> oops. I mean, that's an awkward way to awkward. end it. Is Leia DTF? <laughs> No, I don't think so. Alex, what are uncomfortable questions overheard in Jabba's palace for 500? Oh, Oh, jeez. Yeah, well, I think that experience would have uh, soured her on it as well. But, um, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But it's it's definitely, um, like, that is something about Star Wars. It's, It's got a slightly... Paternal, not not paternalistic, slightly old-fashioned view of everything, and it's it's kind of I, I've always considered like, <coughs> excuse me, in the seventies, you know, pop culture was arguably more sexual in general, mm-hmm. um, and Star Wars came along and it was notably very antiseptic and unsexualized for its t- for its time, especially, um, and. You know, it's there like any sex. Sex is subtextual. It's not really, you know, hands the only character who kind of feels even vaguely sexual of that group. The rest mm-hmm. feel like, you know, 
nine-year-olds who happen to be in adult bodies, kind of. Um, and and it's an in- it's interesting to think about, like, and I always find it interesting that you see Star Wars posters, and they've got, like, Luke with his shirt ripped open, and you've got Leia with her, her leg... Uh, you know, exposed yeah. like she's got like slits up her dress <laughs> like desperately trying to sexualize something that wasn't that sexy basically yeah um, i mean you can argue for whatever you know your turns you on but it's not it's it's a very desexualized sort of context and that always continued with i think especially with the prequels there's always a sense of lucas kind of being he, you know, kind of a conservative attitude, I think, that wasn't always the, my favorite thing in Star Wars. So, um, but, you know, it is obviously meant for kids, and I understand not wanting, you know... Uh, like, so to answer the, the question of, like, should there be sex in Star Wars, it's like, there should be... There can be implicit sex in Star Wars, because... And I don't even mean from a narrative point of view. I mean, you know, characters giving each other, you know, the moody eyes... Um, is fine, but there should obviously not be any real sexy Star Wars uh, because it's kind of a it's well. Kind yeah, of if a, you can't have characters piece. give people the moody eyes, you'd have to write out Lando from every scene he's in. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I, I like that when they announce Lando as pansexual. It's like even the, that's the kind of bullshit move they always do, where it's like, oh yeah, there's a there's a gay character in the background of that one scene. You didn't see him; he just left. Uh, but when they announced Lando's pansexual, everyone's just like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, whatever. No shit. No, nobody does. Well, yeah, but then people were like, unless unless we see it on screen, it don't mean a thing. I, 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 <laughs> I, mean, I totally get that. That's, but, a, yeah. that. that's a valid thing, but it's also Lando, and I remember yeah. Empire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, no, like, like it's it's widely accepted that he is, and I totally get that. But it's also just kind of like, that's not real representation in right. in a way that feels real for people nowadays oh, yeah for sure and I, I i get that but i i yeah. think just talking about the whole idea of like implicit sex yeah. uh, i think that is a thing where i think it's valid to say a lot, a lot of people have pointed out that on film a sex scene isn't necessarily the sexiest thing you can see on screen uh an actual i think it was uh, roger ebert who said um you know, if you watch uh, a sex scene for a minute, you want to have sex immediately. If you watch a sex scene for five minutes, uh, you never want to have sex again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, which may be an exaggeration, but it's true. It's like I'd, like in the olden days, you, you literally couldn't show sex scenes. So they'd have like a musical number, like a big dance number. And uh, that was in some there are dance numbers that are sexier than any actual sex scene you would ever see on film. You know, there's there's something to be said for the idea of no, you don't show everything. Uh, right. You just metaphorically portray a sex scene. The less <laughs> and more, kind of, if you uh, will. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, it kind of so so in that very real sense. Uh, but I mean, Star Wars has kind of always been lacking even that, um, and uh, I think that. You know, I think it's fair to respect that aspect of it. I think and there's lots of other things with with a little more spice to it that, you know, if you're looking for that. I mean, the <laughs> core of it is that Star Wars has always been acknowledged, whether you want to call it a kids series or a an all-ages series, children are a large part of the intended audience. Mm-hmm. For sure, right? Definitely. So you can't explicitly just jettison that. No, exactly. No. 
No. And it's it's one of those... Well, it's like how comic books, superhero comics, have kind of ruined themselves by, oh, they're for adults now. You don't have to be embarrassed to read superhero comics. It's like, no, maybe you should just grow up and read something that aren't superhero comics if that's what you really want. You know what or, I mean? Or... Or why are you embarrassed that you're still reading superhero comics if you enjoy them? Like, yeah, you right. should just enjoy the things you enjoy. Which right. is why it's it's a little upsetting that DC now has to make a kid-friendly version of all of their characters now. Yeah. Um, because kids can't read the actual comics. Yeah. So there, I, think, I, think, I think comics, superhero comics, have started to improve the last few years about being more kid-friendly. I think we're finally getting away from the, oh, it has to be edgy and grimdark. At least Marvel's yeah. gotten a little better for that. Um, well, and- I think Marvel's realized that people are in more enjoying the kind of lighthearted flair that a lot of their more popular titles have right now, and that and might I be why. I hope they realize that after the kind of flop of their last attempt for the serious story with Secret Empire. Right. Apparently, they have, they have learned to just ignore that Secret Empire happened. So, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've even literally... though they, even though for the first month after Secret Empire ended, they were like, "No, this is a thing. We're going to keep doing the thing," and people were like, "No, don't do the thing." How about and then we... they decided, "Okay, yeah, fine, I, I we mean... won't do the thing." <laughs> Here's an idea: <laughs> we don't do the thing. Yeah. <laughs> Let us never speak of Secret Empire again. Yeah. Well, that's a whole. That's actually a whole other thing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with doing kind of a politically charged story in the context of superheroes, uh, right? Because you can you can no. do that and still do something that is for all ages. So that's Secret Empire had a whole other set of problems that we can, <laughs> that, that we don't want to get into. I right mean, now. I was I was at yeah. Barnes and Noble the other day with a friend, and it was on the shelves, and I was just like, oh, why, why? Yeah. Why you shouldn't have even released it into trade back? <laughs> Nobody should should read it, and no. the people who do want to read it just because they want to see what what the heck it was about should just like buy it online. <laughs> spend spend the the, the however much it is five ninety nine for it, and it'll be significantly cheaper. And then you could always delete it later. <laughs> well, I I literally have not read a Marvel comic in like a couple of years, so yeah, but uh, um... but yeah, generally my general impression is that the main books are still maybe having some issues like that. But there's lots of the smaller books that seem to be. Uh, maybe a little better for being all ages, maybe. And DC has like Superhero Girls line and some other yeah. lines that they've been working on. They they they're they just announced a new one that's of the the Trinity. So mm-hmm. that isn't yeah. a superhero the Superhero Girls one, uh, which that's getting a soft reboot with a TV show now, I yeah. believe, because they had Lauren Faust redo the designs. Yeah. But. Uh, in any case, uh, yeah, it seems like comics has realized. Okay, we we need to keep it keep the the all the all ages thing. Just because if if you're able to do good all ages things, it actually means you have a wider audience and therefore a better chance to make money right. <laughs> than just doing all grim dark all the time. Because then yeah. you, you're limiting your scope too For much. Sure. Well. It- yeah. Also well, to, I think um, also to come back to Discworld, it is a thing there mm-hmm. that if you can write the story to be all ages, it's inherently good, and then you can, and it would be good as a non-all ages thing. If you can't, it won't be. Right. 
Like, right. Uh, Terry Pratchett in an interview said that, uh, like, they asked how he changed his uh, writing style for writing the uh, children's Discworld novels, and he said pretty much that he didn't really. He just, you know, kept in mind what the audience, what the audience was for the sake of the jokes. And right. other than that, mm. it was pretty much he was he acted like he was writing for the same audience. Right. Well, I, I try to remember who, who said it was. Um, he said, uh, who, who said they, uh, someone who wrote, I can't remember who it was, they wrote for both kids and adults, and they said, well, sometimes, you know, your your books get too sophisticated for adults, so you have to dumb it down for them. Yeah. <laughs> but, Sounds uh, about right. Yeah. <laughs> well, was it yeah. John Bluth who said that it should be uh, complicated enough to keep children interested uh, and simple enough that, so that adults don't get confused? <laughs> That's that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, was it Don Bluth? I thought it was someone else. But yeah, anyway, like I might be like, remembering uh, it wrong. But that's yeah. basically our motto for this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah sounds about right. <laughs> On that note, I think it's uh, we've been going for a while. So let's uh, yep. let's put a pin in it. As always, uh, get rid of the uh, you know salute to all the clickbait. Any final thoughts, anyone? <laughs> uh. Well, we didn't get to talk about the Flintstones, but that's okay. That's, I think oh, that'll we wait till next week. We, we talked. Yeah, we talked about the uh, vital topics of uh, the recent weeks, so I, yeah. I think that's. Uh, and plus, of course, lots of Star Trek and Star Wars and Discworld discussion, as there always is on this podcast. And so uh, probably always will be. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's what you like, folks, stay tuned for uh, another two weeks from now. Uh, as always. Um, I'm Adam. We've got Ing and Avi here. I you can check us out on our Patreons uh, for Adam Prosser and uh, Ing. And uh, keep I, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably there already. We'd really appreciate a couple bucks in the jar. Uh, you get to hear this podcast early if you do so. Uh, plus, we all have we're both artists. You've got lots of uh, special art uh, art uh, bonuses and things. Um, anyway, uh, we'll see you again in a couple weeks. Avoid clickbait, and uh, we'll see you in the funny pages. Bye, Bye. everyone. Bye.